welcome to, to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, let's begin. This is where the secrets of Hollywood, Hollywood's darkened alleys come to light. In this episode, we explore the chilling and unsolved mystery of Bob Crane's murder. Known for his charming role in Hogan's Heroes, Crane's life took a sinister turn, culminating in a brutal murder that, murder that has puzzled investigators for decades. Found savagely bludgeoned in his Arizona apartment, Crane's death st stirred a whirlwind of suspicion and intrigue. With theories entwined in scandal and betrayal, join us as we delve into the enigmatic and haunting tale of a Hollywood star whose end remains as perplexing as the life he led. This is Scarlet Tavern, Mead, Murder, and More. Alright, so... Um, first, we want to apologize for the late releases of some of our episodes. We had some scheduling issues um, and some upload issues, so that's why we had some changes. So we are actually changing our release schedule. Normally, our episodes are released every Friday. However, due to, again, scheduling changes, we are going to start releasing on Saturdays. Um, so we record, we will record on Fridays and release on Saturdays. Um, so again, we apologize for the late delay and the double releasing, but um, yeah, we had, we had some scheduling issues. So from now on, we will be releasing on Saturdays. Well, we still got a great episode up here. I um, got the murder of Bob Crane. Yeah. I don't even think. I think Caleb, you weren't. You weren't even. Did you even know about this guy beforehand? Yeah. I just wanted to make sure you. I'm the fan of the classic TVs. I wasn't sure if this went back far enough for Caleb. Yeah, I, my grandfather watched these. Oh God! No, it's nothing. Nothing. Sorry, everyone. Had to had to geek out a little there on my classic TV. But yeah, well, we're talking about the Bob Crane, probably one of the least talked about uh, murders in Hollywood history, but really, he's got one of the most sordid lifestyles out there. Probably would have made some of the uh, current um, current fetish pe people out there blush out there with some of the stuff. I mean, for his time, this was, oof, had a little bit of a sneak uh, a little behind the curtains of what all these Hollywood stars are doing but uh, but yeah but we're going to start off with the life the early life of Bob Crane and his career kind of leading up to what he was doing before the day he was murdered just to give everybody an idea of who he was so let's let's get into it so Bob Crane was born in uh, Waterbury Connecticut the younger of two sons of Rose Mary and Alfred Thomas Crane uh, Crane actually started performing um, at the age of 11 while he played the drums. By the junior high, he was organizing local drum and bugle parades with his neighborhood friends. He uh, joined in the high school orchestra and its marching and jazz bands. Uh, he also played for the Connecticut and Norwalk Symphony Orchestra as part of their youth orchestra program. Graduated from Stamford High in uh, 1946, and then in 1948, he actually enlisted for two years in the, uh, the Connecticut Army National Guard. It was honorably discharged in 1950. Never could figure out what he actually did in the Connecticut Guard, but I'm sure it was yeah, probably nothing much. Um, that previous year, um, he had uh, married his high school sweetheart, Ann 
uh, Theresen. They had three children, Robert David, Deborah Ann, and, and Karen Lisa. Um, now, Crane was kind of interesting where he uh, his Hollywood career didn't begin in um, the movies or TV. He actually became, started on uh, radio. He started in uh, WLEA and uh, Horn... In Hornell, New York. Sorry, everyone. I uh, moved to Connecticut stations in Bristol and in Bridgeport. Um, he got very popular doing that because this is these radios primarily um, the main audience would have been New York City. So Crane was already becoming quite the um, known radio personality. Uh, in 1956, he's actually hired by CBS Radio to host the morning show on its uh, West Coast flagship KNX in Los Angeles. And uh, California, this is where he kind of started really getting into the entertainment of his his wit. He would do his performance, his musical performance, and he actually had a lot of big name uh, celebrities on his show to include uh, just a few that you may or may not have heard of: Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Hope. Um, his show got really popular in, uh, amongst adult listeners that he actually became known as the king of the L.A. airwaves. Uh, now, while this is all going on, Crane is actually um, starting to get more ambitious in his, uh, in his uh, entertainment ambitions and trying to get into actual acting, uh, he led, um, which led him to guest hosting for uh, Johnny Carson on the daytime game show, Who Do You Trust?, and uh, he had appearances um, uncredited with The Twilight Zone, uh, Channing, never heard of that show, Alfred, Hitch Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and the uh, General Electric Theater. These are very well before my times. <laughs> uh, let's see. Al after Carl Rayner appeared on his uh, radio show, Crane per persuaded Rayner to book him for guest appearances on the Dick Van Dyke Show. Dick Van Dyke, I believe, wasn't he the, uh, he, what, he was in Mary Poppins, right? He, he, Dick he, Van Dyke, yes. Yes, he was the, uh, he was a chimney sweeper guy. Um, after seeing, after Crane's performance on the guest appearance of the Dick Van Dyke show, um, he actually got on the Donna Reed show, and Donna Reed offered him a guest spot on her program. Um, that episode, he played a Dr. David Kelsey, and it was actually, he did so well, they incorporated him into the, uh, the main storyline of the show. He became a regular cast member, and but while this is going on, he still um, was still working in KNX um, and the and the radio there. I found out his MOS. Oh, what was Bob Crane's MOS? So it, back then it was it was an 052, which now is a 46 Sierra. Which is a public affairs mass communication specialist. Yeah, that's not so he he was a radio announcer in the army. Huh. So that's yeah. that's what he did. I had to do a little bit of digging, but Oh, that's uh that's actually a pretty that that fits for him. I yeah. I can't imagine Bob Crane working in the mortar pool. Because uh, he, he worked for the Armed Forces Radio Service during World War Two. Really? Yeah. Okay. So he was one of the voices for radio during during the war. Really? Yeah. Okay. Which is why he became so famous. Yeah. A lot of a lot of great celebrities started started their careers off in the U.S. Army, especially back then. Yeah, and then going to of course Hogan's Heroes. 
about the Army Air Corps. Uh, well, it's, it's, it was funny. We're just about to get into that. In 1964, he actually left the, his uh, show, the Donna Reed show, and I believe he also left his radio gig. And 1965 is where he got he landed his big role in the CBS sitcom set in World War II POW camp, Hogan's Heroes. Now, again, for any of you all there who don't know what the show is about, basically it's a group of allied soldiers that are in a... Um, in a German POW camp, they they're all they're a funny, witty little group of guys. They they do sabotage and spy missions for the Allies. Um, they and the guard and the German guards are all idiots, especially like Sergeant Soltz, who would if, who would be like I know nothing, nothing, or the camp commandant who's just a buffoon. Uh, it it was a great show. Funny enough, the show lasted six seasons, and it's actually lasted longer than you know actual World War Two. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great show, everybody. If you ever fi- have a chance to watch it, I highly recommend it. Um, show was a hit, finishing at the top ten of this uh, in its first year on the in the airwaves. Uh, the series lasted for six seasons on CBS, and Crane was actually nominated for an Emmy Award in 1966 and 1967. So this is where Crane Crane's kind of his career goes into a bit of a slump, almost a plateau. Uh, following the cancellation of Hogan's Heroes in 1971, Crane appeared in two Disney films: Super Dad in the title role and a small role in Gus. In 1973, he produ- he purchased the rights to a comedy play be, uh, called Beginner's Luck and began touring it as its star and director. And uh, he would do this... Uh, basically, he started doing what was basically what they call... I don't know if they have it anymore. Dinner theaters. Basically, he would go around... They still do it? They still do it? I didn't know. I know this was kind of a thing back in like the early like the 60s and 70s. Uh, basically, he'd go around the country performing plays at dinner theaters. Now, this is... If, this is kind of a of a step down for him in his eyes. He's almost fifty years old at this point, and um, he's kind. Of, this is really his main staple of 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 performing and, and having an income. But as we're gonna get into it, this is this also served a another more more sinister point to it too. And a little fun fact is the a lot of people believe that Hogan's Heroes and MASH were kind of in the same world. Really? I never heard of that. So some of the, one of the main writers for MASH wrote a few episodes of Hogan's Heroes. Oh, really? So they believe that, because they're set in the same time. Yeah, one's in the Korea and one's in World War II. But they, II. they believe that they're in the same world. Um, oh, and some of the actors that were in MASH were also in Hogan's Heroes. So they, a lot of people believe that they, they were planning eventually if these shows didn't get canceled that they were planning a crossover that would have been funny that would have been like one of the first crossovers in tv because they didn't do it much yeah. back then oh yeah no no they but never the, did that. that cast together all of them because mash was great too it's one of my favorite mm, war shows mash. but the people were hoping that they would do that cast together because you have the comedy of hogan's heroes the comedy of mash yeah. all in a war setting Mash, although went a little deeper there, if I remember, oh, yeah. I, I've I've seen, I've seen all of Hogan's heroes. Realistically, Hogan's was all about the comedy. Like you, you almost got the feeling it's like, do they? Can they actually get out? Can they? They could probably get out whenever they wanted. Are they just 
kind of scam shamming and just staying yeah. in the camp. Um, so now between these theater engagements, Crane was also guest starring in a number of television shows, including uh, Police Woman, Gibsonville, Quincy, M.E., and The Love Boat. God, I think everybody was in The Love Boat. Everybody was in The Love Boat. Yeah. Um, in 1975, he returned to television with his own series, The Bob Crane Show on NBC, which was canceled after 13 episodes. In uh, early 1978, uh, Crane tapped a travel document. Tape. Oh, tape. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. I, I can speak English, I promise. Uh, taped a travel documentary in Hawaii and recorded an appearance on the Canadian cooking show Celebrity Cooks. Canadians can cook? I guess. I'm sure it involves a lot of maple syrup. It probably does. That's probably all they cook with. Uh, Canadians aren't real people. uh, I should just assume all the the hate mail from Canada should be coming to me. Um, Neither aired in the U.S. uh, after his death in the following... Yeah, follow in the following June. So now, as we're get, we're about to get into it, uh, we're going to get into basically the murder and how the how everything transpired. Uh, just giving everybody a bit of a warning here. There, this is a particularly brutal thing in there. And during our research, we have included the police reports, the forensic reports, and everything. So, if you got a squeamy stuff. Your discretion is advised. There you go. Our, our resident voice a- voice actor, Caleb. Um, <laughs> someone please hire him. Please. Um, <laughs> please. That's why you stop doing this fucking podcast. Wow. I'm kidding. I was about to say. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Sammy, you did too. Please hire me. <laughs> yeah, still, please I, hire him. I can do whatever voice you want. Just whatever, folks. Don't take it that the wrong way. <laughs> All right. So, on June 29, 1978... Bob Crane was discovered uh, bludgeoned to death in his Scottsdale, Arizona apartment. He killed himself. (laughs) (laughs) He had to really want to die at this point. Um, He had been performing a month-long run of the play Beginner's Luck at the Windmill Diner Theater in Scottsdale. I don't think he had much luck. No. God. Uh, Winfield Place Apartments, uh, this is where he was staying at in Scottsdale during the run of the... Oh, me. Uh, on the afternoon of uh, June 29th, his co-star, Vic- Victoria Ann Barry, enters his apartment after he failed to show up for a lunch meeting. They, they still exist, by the way. Oh, this place those, still exists? Those apartments, they're condos now, but they still exist. Oh. In hey, Scottsdale. Everybody, don't be surprised if we do want to see if there's a haunted a haunting at the, of Bob Crane. The, the, the ghost of Bob Crane. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, after seeing, after what we're about to see, Caleb, we may or may not want to actually meet yeah. the Bob, the ghost of Bob Crane. Um, now, after um, she entered the apartment, which he and f- after he failed to show up for a lunch meeting, and discovered his body. Um, now, initially, when she she got in there, um, the room was covered in blood. Actually, one of the, the books that I read for research for this, she actually thought at first that there was a woman there because there was like long streaks of blood that looked like someone's hair. She thought it was like a Bob had had a lady over in there. But when she turned the light on, she discovered, um, well, basically she discovered Bob dead. Actually, point of fact though, um, she didn't actually know it was Bob. The, yeah. the amount of da- as we're about to see, the amount of damage done to his head and face were so 
extensive that they she couldn't actually determine it was He him. did not have an open casket. Uh, yeah, put it that way. Uh, police were actually on scene within minutes of the initial call that was made by the neighbors. Uh, Victoria at first could not tell who the victim positively were due to the extensive damage they had. As more police officers came to the scene, they started to note the position of the body, which was lying on its right side in the bed in a semi-fetal sleeping position, uh, head resting partially on a blood-soaked pillow, left hand tucked under the chin, his right arm stretched the length of his body, and the bed sheet came up to about chest high. And around the the victim's neck, they actually found a black electrical cord tied with a single right-handed twist. On one, one end of the cord had the electrical plug on it, and the other appeared to have been cut from the rest of the cord. Now, no, there were no signs of struggle or the victim had tried or even have had a chance to defend himself from his attacker. So, essentially, Bob was probably sleeping. Out so, he was probably sleeping. He was bludgeoned to make sure he's out, and then being choked. Basically, a garrote around his neck. Yeah. Um, now, neighbors were interviewed, and the only thing that they noted was that was reported from the upstairs neighbors. They had went to bed around 11.15 and they had heard from downstairs Bob Crane had having what seemed to be a very loud and angry one-sided argument with somebody. Most likely he was on the phone with somebody and yelling and screaming at them. Now uh, here is, now it should be noted that Scottsdale Police Department at this point in time in their history, they, they do not have a homicide squad. Nope. They have they have detectives, but they don't have a dedicated homicide squad. So there all still wasn't really a place where people were killed like being this. Killed, yeah. So already this is kind of setting the tone and of how this police how this investigation is. Um, it also should be noted that there was at this point there is no crime scene tape at all put up there. Yeah. So now this was they they just they tried to justify it by saying that there was the media hadn't shown up for this so there was no need to put the the uh, the tape up but nonetheless it seems like a small but glaring detail to miss in my opinion uh, so now one of the um, first investigators on the scene police officer Dennis Borkenhagen also known as Bork Borkenhagen Borkenhagen. Uh, officer, uh, if 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 Officer Morgan Hagen sure is not alive, if his family listens to this, we have nothing but respect for him. For Morgan Hagen, or Bork, as everyone else on the force known him as Bork, 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 Bork. I I am sure I am <laughs> oh, sure his fellow D&D, officers, new D and D character, Bork, city guard is the, the, the head of the of our campaign two's guard of the school is uh is Bork, and, and he's half pig. Oh God. <laughs> oh God! Please, the family, the estate of Borkenhagen, don't hate us. We ha- we have nothing but respect for him, because it seems like from what I've been uh, re- my research of this, he actually he knew his job, he knew his stuff, and actually was able to figure this out pretty quickly. So, honest to God, to to the officer, this was to Officer Borkenhagen. So. Known as Bork, a former detective with Scottsdale PD. Bork, as he was known, had rotated out of investigation and was actually back on the patrol division. 
He was called by the scene commander to help with the investigation. In his report, Bork noted the state of the apartment and what was actually found on the scene. So he described entering the ground floor apartment. Uh, the apartment was a two-bedroom unit with a kitchen toward the front on the right as you entered. To the left was a bedroom. Immediately past the kitchen area was a dining area and a living room on the right and a master bedroom on the left in the rear of the apartment. There was an Arcadia door leading onto a patio that looked out on the complex swimming pool. The draperies were closed across the Arcadia door. In front of these draperies were an assortment of videotaping equipment, including three videotape recorders slash players, a video camera, and a TV set. Now, th- folks, this is nineteen. This is the nineteen seventies. This is not today where we have like these sleek little yeah. compact stuff. This is big, bulky equipment, and this is a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, numerous. Video cassettes were also in view around his around his uh, equipment. In the master bedroom next to where the victim lay, Borkenhagen noted that an array of photographic equipment was present. This equipment included developing trays and photographic chemicals and a device for making enlargements from negatives. So, and I'll say that that definitely plays a big factor because I don't know if we get into it but there is there were rumors running around that he would record sexual content oh no women. oh no this wasn't rumored this yeah. we are well, we're, no it was rumored it was rumored found the evidence. and then yeah, yeah no this actually so became... that's that's why him talking about this equipment makes a big deal is because the rumor was is that he was videotaping them without their consent <laughs> and it turns out that it was he true. was. So he wasn't this innocent man that everybody thought he was. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there were several tray strips, several, oh, excuse me, several strips of 35mm film in the bathroom. A photo enlarging apparatus set awkwardly on top of the toilet. Uh, the toilet. toilet. Um, the negatives were photos of naked women engaged in numerous sexual acts. Borkenhagen noticed the apartment was a mess, with junk all over the place and miscellaneous items strewn about. Uh, In his words, Bob Crane was living like a college kid, not like a man just weeks away from turning 50. Borkenhagen noted that although the rooms in the apartment did not appear to be orderly, they did not show any signs of a struggle having taken place in any of the rooms. Reinforces the the, the theory that whoever came in did not, Bob was not aware of this person. And there were no signs of forced entry into the apartment. The front door, according to Barry, was unlocked. The Arcadia door leading to leading out to the patio in the pool was locked. Whoever the killer was, Bob Crane either let, willingly let them in or they had just let themselves into the apartment. So as we we're starting to as you're we starting to say, one of the big motives that would actually that's going to come into um, into this in the, in the further further along the investigation is. This the sex capades basically of Bob Crane, and they are bad. Like even today, this would be you, you would almost feel like Bob Crane was really a porn star, not a yeah. you know. So on June on June thirtieth, the deputy medical examiner for Maricopa Maricopa County, Doctor Thomas Jarvis, performed the autopsy on the unembalmed body of Bob Crane. Jarvis. Jarvis. Um. Officer Borkenhagen was present along with um, Lieutenant Ron Dean. 
so the official medical examiner report lists Crane as 49 years of age with brown hair and brown eyes. Crane often told people he was six foot tall. I do the exact same thing. Um, he was uh, um, he was 70 inches, 5'10", and weighed 191 pounds. First part of the autopsy involved Dr. Jarvis simply prodding and observing the body and examined all the obvious signs of trauma and bruising on Crane's head. The type of death is listed as violent, the manner by blunt instrument or in court. Abnormal findings, abundant dry blood on face, hair, upper chest. The autopsy report also noted a flaky white dry material in the pubic hair, right lower abdomen and right anterior? Anterior. Anterior thigh, likely semen, although it was never tested. Uh, this is actually, they were upset about this because they would have liked to know if the semen was Bob Crane's or if it was possibly um, the, one of the, the main person that they had a suspect, they had in mind as a suspect, may have masturbated over Bob Crane's lifeless body after killing him. Uh, Borkenhagen asked that the semen be collected. Dr. Jarvis apparently blurted out, what's that gonna tell, going to tell you, that he had a piece of ass before he was killed? Great doctor. Yeah, Dr. Jarvis, you should have been fired. Yeah. You... Clearly, I don't know what Dr. Jarvis was used to doing, but... Prob- his job. Yeah, it was, his job was not one of them. Uh, that was, and that was the end of that. Bor- uh, Bork and Hagen said the Emmy's office was their domain, and in that room, Jarvis ran the show. Uh, he didn't press the issue any further. Jarvis examined the marks from the electrical cord that had been tied around Crane's neck. The report describes the wound as slightly depressed and circulating ligature mark around the neck, three-eighths of an inch in diameter, traveling the upper body of the larynx. The report notes that a contusion, also known as a bruise, of the lower, the left lower lip, small, small contusion of the right lower eyelid, contusions of the left upper eyelid. Uh, confluent with the contusion of the left temple, the fatal injury, this is what killed him, a hit to the head. Met The medical examiner cleaned the fatal wound around the injury for a more detailed look. The examination revealed two parallel horizontally oriented contused lacerations behind the left ear, each an inch and a half long. Blow had also fractured the skull and caused it to cave in about three quarters of an inch. Uh, Caleb, that is that's pretty bad. That's oh, that's yeah. a that's rage right there. Oh yeah, skull's a th- skull's a thick bone. That's not easy to do. Uh, the skull fracture was oval shaped and measured about four inches by two and a half inches in diameter. Uh, Doctor Jarvis needed to look at the brain to fully understand the extent of the injuries. He made an incision and basis and the skin and scalp, the skin and scalp covering the forehead was folded down over his face. The section was folded over the nap of the neck. Basically, they are peeling his skin away, folks. Uh, skull was open to reveal the brain and signs of trauma from a blunt murder weapon were clearly visible. Noted in the autopsy report was a deep contusion of the brain, left temporal, left frontal, frontal lobes, and thalamic nuclei. I have no idea what that is. Thalamic nuclei. Thalamic nuclei. Sorry, folks. I can, I, I'm, I'm always bad at pronunciations. Um, there was minimum aspirations of blood into the lungs. Crane was knocked out instantly by the vicious first blow and the damage compounded by the second equally powerful blow. Uh, he all likelihood died within a minute or two of the, of the first strikes to his head. 
Uh, Crane's thoracic cavity was sawed open in the sternum, and his internal organs could be examined. Otherwise, besides that, he was in good health for his age. Um, heart, liver, kidney, and also were all healthy and functioning. He probably would have lived... He would probably have lived at least another 30 years, I figure. Um, stomach contents, uh, partially digested food. Um, they, they determined the time of death estimated around 3 or 3.30 a.m. And, of course, cause of death was his head injury, manner of death, homicide. So now, as this is going on, they are the police are already have a suspect in mind, and he just so happened to do the... Um, due to the courtesy of introducing himself to them already um, at the beginning of the investigation, and indeed almost from the moment of the first statements taken, one name started popping up to the police. John Carpenter. No relation to the uh, to the director. Right? That's his name? John yes. Carpenter? Yeah, not that. Different John Carpenter. This is a different John one. John was described as a close friend of Bob's for many years and actually traveled with Bob to many of the venues for his de- dinner theater productions. Uh, he first got on the police radar when the police were still at the scene of the murder and John had actually called asking to speak to Bob. Uh, police did a preliminary interview with John and um, almost immediately John is trying to enter, he's trying to put himself in there. He keeps asking them questions like, well, what happened? Was he shot? Did this happen? This and that. They're asking a lot of questions. He's actually more so than... Um, by what he, by what a friend or acquaintance would probably get involved in. Yeah, trying to in, as as some of the police officers described, he was trying to insert himself into the into the investigation. Um, now, after this preliminary interview, they real they started to they actually figured that while John was in town for a business meeting, plat you know, what he as he would call it ninety percent. 90% um, chasing tail with Bob to 10% business. Um, they had actually rented a car. Um, the police decided to search the rental car. John, John was traveling while he was in Arizona. Uh, they actually found the car, and in the trunk of the car, they found blood smears. And upon testing, they actually determined the blood was from somebody that was type B positive which is what Bob Crane was, and Carpenter was not. Now, type B positive is actually a rare blood type. Not very many people have it. Now, keep in mind, folks, this is also before DNA testing, so there's no way to determine if this is actually Bob Crane's blood or whose blood. They have no idea. The other thing, yeah. though, is, is that this car is spick and span except for the trunk, and it's not like Bob Crane went anywhere. It was like something had just been put in the trunk, and they took it out, and it smeared the stain on the trunk. Um, police were able to determine that nobody at the rental dealership had actually hurt themselves while they were servicing the car, and Carpenter, um, um, was asked, like, what, did you hurt yourself? Like, no. Well, why is there blood in the trunk? Well, I don't know. So, um, he was actually, later on, he was actually asked formally to give an account of his movements on the night of the murder. Carpenter... Um, by his, this is Carpenter's account. He attended the performance of Beginner's Luck and once again sat at the VIP table. After the performance team, Bob went out to Crane's car and noticed that the right rear tire was flat. They went to, they went to fix it at a gas station and went to Crane's apartment. 
Uh, he recounted an angry phone call between Bob and his strange wife, Patty, leaving, um, and then they left to go where, to a place called Bogarts where they met another person. Uh, there they talked at the bar and invited this uh, Carol Newell, who was the person they met, to join them at the safari for breakfast. I guess this was a, pl- a diner or someplace. Uh, they piled into the car. Uh, basically, they drove around to her there and um, met somebody else there, a Caroline Bear. Joined them a few minutes later. They ate breakfast and chatted for about an hour. Uh, they all left the safari hotel around 2.30 a.m., Crane and Bear with Carpenter Newell. Carpenter took Newell back to his hotel. Uh, it should be the, her hotel. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Crane had told that he was alone had struck out with Caroline Barr, so he did not have any kind of um, intimate relations with anyone that night. Um, Carpenter said Crane had told him that he was in his undershorts and editing videotapes. Uh, Carpenter reminded Crane that he had a flight out of Phoenix at 10 a.m. the next morning and created an appointment the following day. Carpenter said that he would drive himself to the airport so Bob could sleep in. He said he would call him up once he was back in Los Angeles. Carpenter originally told the police that he spoke to Crane about 1 a.m. the night of the murder. He later would revise this and say he spoke to him at 2.45 a.m. So he's already changing the sto- changing the story. Um... He turned in his rental car at his hotel the next day, and he left and flew back to Los Angeles and didn't know, and went back to work. Uh, again, police had asked if he had injured himself when he would have, that were called him to believe when he was in Phoenix. He had not. Crane had not. He said Crane had not injured himself or cut himself during that time. Um... He, but he, um... He said that he he asked if Crane usually did cut himself shaving. He used a double razor. Um, Crane, the police asked the carpenter if he had loaned his vehicle to anybody. He said he had not. He asked if the car was ever left unsecure or given to a valet. He said no. Um, he said during his time in Phoenix, there was only three people who were in that car that week. Bob Crane, Carol... Carol Newell and himself. He said the car was not in use. It was old. when it was not in use, it was always a lot. Um, now, at this point, the police are convinced that this John Carpenter is their man. He's literally the only one who has access to Bob's apartment. He has, by his own account, nobody could have gotten into the car. So this is our suspect. This is who the police believe did this. Um, however, Maricopa County... Maricopa, am I pronouncing it right? Maricopa. Maricopa County DA felt that there wasn't enough evidence that linked him to the murders. Now, police um, had theorized that there, the weapon that would have been used to kill Crane would have been a tripod of a video camera, but nothing was ever proven conclusively. Keep in mind, there's no murder weapon. They have nothing. They have a dead body. They have. They also have no motive. What What's his motive to kill him? Uh, as we'll see there, they'll come out. That's going to come out later, years down the line. The motive that they that's presented when they finally do get some DNA testing done and they do get some more enough evidence to go to trial. Um, so that and that's what exactly what happens in 1990. They 92. Uh, 90. Yeah, sorry, 92. Uh, he is arrested and charged with the murder. 
Um, they did. They were able to do some. They some a uh, year or so before they did some actual more DNA testing with was um, um, not available at the time. They discovered evidence and photographic evidence of the car's interior that appeared to show a piece of brain tissue. Um, but the actual tissue samples recovered from the car had been lost. But the Arizona judge ruled that the new evidence was admissible, and in 1992, Carpenter was arrested and charged with Crane's murder. Now, at the at the trial that had happened in 1994, Crane's uh, son Robert had actually testified that Crane had re repeatedly expressed a desire to sever his friendship with Carpenter in the weeks before his death. He said that Carpenter had become a hanger-on and a nuisance to the point of being obnoxious. And this is a direct quote from Robert. Um, my dad expressed that he just didn't need Carpenter's kind of hanging around in him anymore. Crane testified that Crane... Robert testified that Crane had called Carpenter the night before the murder and ended their friendship. Now, understand, the reason why John Carpenter is around is because John Carpenter, during the time when Bob Crane was murdered, was actually an executive salesperson at Sony Electronics. Yeah. So, this is all where... All that Bob equipment, all that video equipment he was getting... All of that is coming from Carpenter. Yeah. Bob and I believe Carpenter knew exactly what it was being used for. Oh, they, they would join in. They, yeah. were, they were cruising around. That's why he's hanging around them yeah. because Bob is bringing in all the ladies. Yeah. And John and Bob are, are engaging in these sexual acts together in some yeah. cases. So he, he's riding the coattails of this. He's getting women galore that he never would have been able to get in his own. I mean, Bob Crane wasn't a bad-looking dude. No, he he by he was, he was a, a heartthrob back then. Oh, absolutely, and plus, everyone around him said he was naturally charismatic. Ladies loved him, and yeah, it didn't hurt that he was you know, um, uh, very well known and famous. Yeah, I mean, most of these people would have seen Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Um, now, Carpenter's attorney, attorneys attacked the prosecution's case as circumstantial and inconclusive. They presented evidence that Carpenter and Crane were still on good terms, including witnesses from the restaurant where the two men had dined the evening before the murder. They noted that the murder weapon had never been identified or found. The prosecution's camera tripod theory was sheer speculation, they said, based on solely on Carpenter's occupation at the time. They disputed the claim that the newly discovered evidence photo showed um, brain tissue and alleged that the police work had been sloppy such as the mishandling and misplacing evidence, including the crucial um, tissue sample itself. They pointed out that Crane had been videotaped and photographed in sexual relations with numerous women, implying that any one of them might have been the killer. Other potential suspects proposed by the, the attorney were included angry husbands and boyfriends of the women and a, an alleged incident where an act, some actor had sworn vengeance after a violent argument with Crane in Texas several months earlier. So, um, as this goes, as you could probably guess, Carpenter was found not guilty. He was acquitted. He, up until the day he died in 1998, he maintained his innocence. And frankly, I'm shocked that they even brought this to trial. Yeah. You have no, I mean, as he said, there's no murder weapon, and the mishand, the chain of evidence is... Yeah, but somebody as big as Bob Crane, they want to solve the case. They don't want it just lingering. I mean, really, realistically, I mean, Hollywood kind of, after he died and all the, the 
his escapades came to, to light. They kind of, I kind of just forgot about him. Probably mostly because nobody wanted to um, answer the question of like, how did he get away with all this? These, you know, yeah, pretty heinous acts, and nobody heard about it. So um, now we're going to move into the last part of this is where. The, um, the theories and motives. So, as we said, Bob Crane was a known sex addict and a notorious for filming his, his many sexual acts with women using home video equipment provided by John Carpenter. Again, worked with Sony Electronics. Um, with um, This was the foundation of the friendship with John, utilizing and setting up the equipment they would use for their various sex acts, and Bob using his fame and charisma to attract women. Uh, this arrangement lasted for a while, but according to Bob's son, um, his father was starting to grow tired of John, and again, described him as obnoxious and hanging on. Plus, in fact, um, Bob had started really understanding the equipment. When this all started, this stuff was new and a novelty, but by the time of his murder, yeah, it was still expensive to buy this stuff, but it was becoming more and more user-friendly. Yeah. So, he really didn't need John anymore. John was just convenient to him. Now, that's the more, I guess, I would say the more likely scenario. The Another theory, again, also provided by his, um, his son, would be um, his involvement with his estranged wife, Patty. So, um, this all started after having a, an affair with his um, Hogan, Hogan's Heroes co-star, Cynthia Lynn, the actress who played Helga. Crane became romantically involved with Lynn's replacement, Patricia Olsen, in 1968, who played Hilda under the stage name Sigrid Valdis. Crane divorced Tezrin, his first wife, in 1970, just before the 21st anniversary, and married Olsen on the set of the show later that year, with series co-star Richard Dawson serving as the best man. Their son, Scotty, was born in 1971, and they later adopted a daughter, Anna Marie. Uh, Robert Crane Jr. later revealed that his, fa- to his, that his father, Bob, was not the biological father of any of Olsen's children when they were married in 1970. Patricia was already pregnant, but Bob had, Bob had had a vasectomy in 1968 while he was still married to his first wife. Crane and Olsen separated in 1977 and were mere weeks away from finalizing the, their divorce at the time of his death. Robert speculated publicly that his that his father's widow, Patty Olson, might have had a role in instigating the crime, as he is quoted saying, nobody got a dime out of the murder, he said, except for one person, alluding to Crane's will, which excluded him, his siblings, his mother, with Crane's entire estate left to Olson. He repeated his suspicions in the book that he wrote about this. Um, now... It's interesting, but the DA at the time, Rick Romley, responded, we never characterized Patty as a suspect, adding that they were convinced that John Carpenter murdered Bob Crane. Uh, officially, the, the case remains unsolved. Now, <coughs> to kind of put a cap on all this, it's, it doesn't solve anything, but in, uh, in 2016... Um, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office permitted Phoenix Television reporter John Hook to submit uh, the 1978 blood samples from Carpenter's rental car for retesting using more advanced DNA technique that, than they used in 1990. Uh, two sequences were identified, one from an unknown male and the other too degraded to reach a conclusion. 
Uh, the testing consumed all the remaining DNA from the rental car, making further tests impossible. Um, they turned up two blood vial samples from Crane and Carpenter, located in evidence storage at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. Carpenter voluntarily gave his samples back when he was questioned in 78. Uh, Crane's blood was obviously recovered during the autopsy. So, essentially what happened with this is they actually, they actually made it even more confusing. Because yeah. the, two, the two DNA things were found, they weren't Bob or Carpenter's blood. They were just some other, there were just other blood in there. Yeah. So, it... it it really just it it really just kind of it answered some questions, but it made it even more mysterious. Because at the end of the day, who murdered Bob Crane? So the world may never know. Yeah. So Caleb, let me now that we've gone through everything, what, you got a theory on this? I mean, I think John Carpenter did it. I think that his son's right that he wanted to get rid of him. He had no need for him anymore. And how else would the blood get there? Nobody else used the car. How would that blood get there? It was essentially positive for Bob Crane's blood. I mean, B-positive blood is not common. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find it really suspicious that he was trying to throw himself into the investigation so much if he had nothing to do with it. Most people would be in shock. They would be in awe. I mean, his best friend just died. Why is he not freaking out? Instead, he wants to know everything that's going on. So I think that... I think John Carpenter did it. I, I tend to agree with that. He has... I mean, again, as we said before, is it interesting to... Is it an interesting... You know, quote unquote, sexy thing to think that the the estranged wife just weeks away from losing everything, gets has her her soon to be ex husband whacked, literally, um, and she gets everything, or what's the more opportunity thing? A person she has no access to his apartment. Not really. She she was known to pop up, but I sincerely doubt she would have just she would have just done that. Carpenter had most to lose from it. He loses access to the, you know, this lifestyle that he's been going through. He can't, you know, all the beautiful women, everything. He loses it all because Bob doesn't need him anymore. Yeah. And I think he just, he really got lucky that he did this in Scottsdale instead of Los Angeles because if this had been in L.A., he would have gotten caught. The LAPD would have, would have been looking for a murder weapon. They were like. It almost seems like when I was researching this, there seems to be no attempt, really, not really, to find this murder weapon. They just, they figured, like, once they figured out John Carp- who John Carpenter was and what he did, they realized, hey, could a tripod of the camera do it? Yeah, yeah, I could do it. Yeah. And that's what they concluded. Where's the tripod? Nah, we don't, we don't know. I ditched it. Yeah. So yeah, this is and this this is the murder of Bob Crane, one a beloved celebrity, but with but one with a dark and sinister past. And did his at the end of the day, did his lifestyle was was his lifestyle the untimely cause of his death, or was he simply unlucky? We'll never know, really. Yeah. So 
Um, we'll be continuing over the next couple weeks in our Hollywood murders um, with a few a few well-known names. Um, and then starting to wind down for the end of the year. Um, we will be taking a break, uh, obviously, over Christmas and things like that. And we'll come back in January with a brand new season. And I think we're going to kickstart the next season with probably one of the biggest topics we've ever discussed. So Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I want to thank you guys for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Please remember to push in your seats, to turn in your glasses, and always tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night.